Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1892, the whaling ship Progress, under the command of Captain Daniel W. Gifford, made an unusual voyage, not out to sea for two or three years, but up the St. Lawrence River and into the Great Lakes, the entire time under tow rather than under sail. Its destination was Chicago and the Great Columbian Exposition of 1893. With me to discuss the last voyage of the Progress and the decades of experience that led to that voyage is the great-great-grandson of Daniel Gifford who was also named Daniel Gifford, but instead of being a ship captain, teaches history at the University of Louisville. His book that we're discussing today is The Last Voyage of the Whaling Ship Progress, New Bedford, Chicago, and the Twilight of an Industry. It is a microhistory, a community history, the history of an industry, and is full of questions about memorialization, memory, and public history. Daniel Gifford, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, this is a monograph, but it has a personal connection between you and one of the important uh, figures in it, which I think is pretty unusual. Um, how did you first discover that you were related to Daniel W. Gifford and share the name? And uh, I mean, I have lots of ways. Are you from New Bedford? Are you? And, and when did you decide that you're going to write a book about this or that was worthy of a book? Yeah. So um, the the. Captain Daniel Gifford um, is someone that has always been part of family lore. Uh, you know, one of these colorful characters. He actually had a, a nickname, Bloody Dan, uh, which of course everyone in the family loved to to talk about. <laughs> so, so I grew up knowing about about this ancestor, and and sometime in the the late nineties, I, I uh, before I ever went to grad school, before I ever took a uh, you know graduate history course. I did a little genealogical research, just uh, poking around and came across his obituary uh, from the New Bedford um, newspaper. And by this point, the the family had not been in New Bedford for a few generations, so going back uh, further than than I'd been before. And in this obituary, um, it had a line, a sentence that said, and he captained the whaling bark progress to the Chicago World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition of 1893. And of course, my first thought is, how the heck do you get a whale ship to Chicago? <laughs> uh, my second thought was, that's really cool. Um, you know, this little tidbit. So it's one of the, and I think this probably happens to historians quite a bit. They, they come across a story, they come across this little factoid or, or nugget that just sort of sticks in the back of the brain. And so, yeah, fast forward a few years, I'm in graduate school, um, and and I both in my studies and then when I started teaching, kept returning to the Columbian Exposition. I enjoyed working with World's Fairs. I thought they were great uh, ways to, to talk about American history. And so every time I sort of went back to the, the exposition and back to uh, 1893, I, I would sort of revisit this this little piece of history that I had this connection to and started to accumulate uh, more more information, more articles, more background. And um, it was it was finally just sort of a, a point in my life where I had the, the space to write the book. I wanted to, you know, take all this information I'd been, been squirreling away. Um, and I, I sat down and started the process. So as I said in the intro, it's this is a community history in some ways. Um, it's a history of in part of New Bedford. Um, I think actually the last time we talked about New Bedford was in episode 120 with Ray Shepard uh, and about his uh, book for uh, teens about the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, the, the African-American regiment made famous uh, by the at- attack on Fort Wagner in the movie Glory. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. New Bedford was... Uh, a key place for whaling. It's also a key place for abolitionism. Uh, it's the first place that Frederick Douglass moved to after he uh, uh, escaped from enslavement. Uh, so could you talk about New Bedford and uh, the importance of its its motto, Lucem de Fundo? Yeah, so this is, um, 
this is actually where I end up starting the book, which I hadn't necessarily anticipated uh, sort of plotting out the the project. But I, as I thought about where this needed to begin, you know, you're right. It's it's a it's a story, very much a story about place, a story about a place's heritage and history. And so I end up going back to to 1853, and the reason that date is important is that's when New Bedford. Uh, was incorporated as a city uh, with Massachusetts, and they redid their seal, their city seal. Um, and they had had a city or a seal before. Um, it was actually wrong. Um, there was it pictured a lighthouse that was in the wrong place. Um, so it was sort of an excuse to redo it. And in redoing it, one of the things they did is they made this subtle shift in the motto. And originally, it had been uh, "Lucem defundens," which you know, it's been a while since I've taken Latin, so uh, pardon the pronunciation. And they switched that to uh, lucem defundo. And and the switch is basically from diffusing light to I diffuse light or, or we diffuse light, you know, depending on mm-hmm. singular or plural. And that's that's that, that struck me as kind of an interesting place to start, you know, this idea of, of not only diffusing light, but sort of asserting a more active role, uh, the active tense, the active verb. Um, we do this. And it's, a very, it's a very playful model, motto because it has multiple meanings, which people in New Bedford must have realized. Yeah. I mean, what, what do they mean by light? You know, is yeah. it metaphorical light? Is it actual light? Is it, is it the lighthouse? Is it, and, and what I argue in, in the book is that um, what they're really talking about here, um, although there's, you know, you can interpret it different ways. Ultimately, it's talking about the products of whaling itself, the whaling industry. The whaling industry produced products that created light. It was candles, uh, spermaceti candles. It was whale oil and spermaceti oil. It was the lights. Uh, it was the oil that lighthouses used. Um, so the things that ships relied on uh, were were produced by uh, New Bedford products. Um, so it's all these these manifestations of things that push back darkness, push mm-hmm. and, and bring forth light. And the reason I thought that's important is within the New Bedford community, as you said, it's, a, it's an abolitionist community uh, and a lot of, uh, for a lot of folks, um, and that goes to Quaker roots. So the same folks that are involved in whaling that are sort of leading the whaling industry in New Bedford are quite often Quakers. And if you've ever even sort of casually encountered uh, Quakers, you know that this is a religion that is sort of infused with metaphors about light. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about old lights, and new lights, and 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 so much of of Quaker literature um, and met- religious metaphor is about lightness and darkness. Um, they, in their religion, they actually talk about the same things. You know, oils and lamps and and lights and. I'm sort of you know pulling all this together and sort of thinking about this, and and I think it's important because. You know, you not only have a, a city that's you know, proud of its heritage, you know, proud of this this industry, proud of um, what they've produced economically and and you know for for the nation, but they they add a, a layer onto it that maybe doesn't exist. Another example where it, it really has a religious sheen. It really has almost an evangelical quality to it, where the industry is itself bringing light, you know, literally and metaphorically and, and spiritually to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's important. I think, you know, as, as the story develops, um, it's important to remember how New Bedford, even after whaling starts to decline, you know, how New Bedford always thought about whaling and how, how much it invested, not just, you know, financially, but psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, um, in this in this industry. So you write, whaling was gruesome, dangerous work filled with life or death moments. Whaling was painfully boring. Um, so there's a paradox there. Um, there's also the paradox that uh, whaling is 
hunting dangerous game, the biggest and most dangerous. Uh, it's also running a seaborne factory. Um, could you explain the paradoxes of whaling uh, and how they then sort of created a culture uh, in New Bedford? Yeah, and 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 the paradoxes are, are numerous. They sort of pile on top of each other. Um, when whale ships went out in pursuit of whales, um, they were after something very specific, which is the whale blubber. Um, at least you know in the early early stage of of whaling. Um, that's what produces the oil that then, you know, creates these, these light producing products that we've been talking about. And why is the, um, uh, why, why is whale blubber? Why is the oil front? Why is it so good? Um, it's, it's when rendered, um, it actually produces, um, a, a light. And it's, it's, it's interesting to use the word good, um, you know, sort of run of the mill whale oil. Uh, right whales and and others actually was pretty nasty. Oh, <laughs> it was okay. it was stinky. It was smoky. Uh, but if you could capture a sperm whale, sperm whale oil was pure. Um, huh. Just you know the physiology of the whale when that blubber was reduced, you know by um, by fire down to uh, an oil had been rendered down to an oil. Um, that oil would burn much cleaner, much brighter, and with much less smoke. And then um, the sperm whale also has another product um, in its head, spermaceti. Um, and that could be scooped out and rendered, and that's what we would uh, produce these, these sort of high-end candles, candles that uh, wealthy families could, could use in their homes and pr- would produce a very uh, bright, clean, uh, clean light, clean-burning light. Um, but, but you had mentioned the idea of a sort of a floating factory, you know, to, Mm -hmm. to do that, you have to go through this process. You have to go through this rendering process of, uh, not just capturing the whale, which is hugely dangerous and hugely, um, you know, life threatening, but you then have to bring it back to this whale ship, um, and, and strip the blubber down your, your, uh, and go through this very gory, gritty, disgusting, blood-filled, uh, oil-filled uh, process um, to get ultimately this liquid oil that's then put in casks and, and stored. Um, and you know, the one reason I, I sort of go into this is it's it's a hugely complicated process. It's one that has numerous steps. Um, it's one that you can't shortcut. You can't, you know, skip a step. Um, it's filled with jargon. Uh, lots of whaling terms that, you know, triworks are, are you know, the, the sort of uh, cauldrons uh, and, and furnaces which, which render this down. There's cutting in, which is actually getting the, the strips of blubber off the whale uh, while it's uh, strapped uh, adjacent to the ship. You know, all this terminology, all of these steps, all of it fairly gross and dangerous and, and filthy. Um, and then at the end, you know, sort of removed from all of that, you have this, this product that you sit in your parlor and, and you burn and it gives you light to read and, and enjoy an evening. So there's, there's this real irony. There's this real disconnect between this dangerous, gruesome product process that then delivers this very sort of domestic, tranquil, uh, warm and homey uh, product at the end. That's very nice. Um, it strikes me as I as I'm reading this and thinking about it um, that well, my friend Matt Crawford has written a book called Shop Class as, as Soulcraft and uh, emphasized that modern technical trades can be as intellectually demanding as well. I don't know, being a historian maybe even being a physicist, which actually Matt was trained to be. Um, and when you read about whaling, you realize this is a community of expertise, uh, which requires, I would imagine, the sort of knowledge that one gets in medical school, mm-hmm. um, the level of jargon, the level of knowledge that's required to stalk a whale, know what a whale will do, where mm-hmm. to find them, how to pursue them. That alone is just dazzling amount of knowledge and experience. And you realize these guys aren't going to whaling university. This is all through apprenticeship um, and by 
actually becoming part of a community of expertise and being raised up in it. Um, and that this eventually suffuses the entire whaling communities, not just New Bedford, but Nantucket, I guess Martha's Vineyard, other places, you know, around on the uh, on the coasts. Um, it's really quite extraordinary how that sort of very um, specific, high-end knowledge unites people into a community. Definitely agree. And and what I would add to that is it it sort of has two effects. It's it's an insular knowledge. It's it's knowledge that, you know, belongs to that community and stays within that community and sort of bubbles up uh, through the, the ranks of the community. You know, often uh, young men would start out at, at age, you know, 14, 15 um, and, and whaling. And, and if, they, if they made a career out of it, would spend their lives uh, accumulating this knowledge and then working their way up the ranks into um, – you know, the rank of an officer and perhaps even uh, a captain one day um, and then start that process all over again with with the next young uh, young men that that came on board as green hands. Uh, one of those another one of those terms. Um, but because it's insular, because it's unique, because it it largely exists either out on these ships or in these uh, you know very specific geographic places, it's not. It's knowledge that's lost. It's knowledge that's not shared uh, with the rest of the world or the rest of the United States. You know, the, and you get occasional, you know, articles, periodicals, and and um, journals talking about whaling. Um, you have um, dime novels um, and sort of popular fiction, especially for young young kids, uh, young adults to read uh, that talk about whaling. Um, but that sort of transfusion of knowledge, that sort of sharing of knowledge remains very removed from most people, except for this sort of narrowly defined fraternity of whalemen. Um, and on the one hand, as you say, that that helps create community. That's one of the, the things that binds a community. It's one of the things that a community shares and, and lets them feel connected to each other. But then it sort of isolates that community from the larger nation, the larger public, mm -hmm. larger uh, uh, body populace uh, that um, they don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> they don't really yeah. understand it. Um, and, um, you know, and what, what does that foreshadow? What is that sort of dichotomy between being in and being out, uh, having that knowledge and not, uh, what does that sort of foreshadow uh, about you know where whaling is going to, to end up? Yeah, given my own interest, it, I immediately made the connection to tobacco and to the culture of tobacco, which is uh, likewise extremely uh, niche area full of knowledge. Um, this is all done in Tim Breen's book, uh, Tobacco Culture, back in the 70s, described all this particular culture of tobacco. Um, whaling is like that. And I think the other similarity is that whaling is as – um, refined a subject as a small philosophy department that only specialized in some obscure branch metaphysics. Um, <laughs> really, it, 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 I, it, people, I'm not exaggerating when you think, when you start to read about it. But, um, you know, what philosophers have done since the 17th, uh, 16th century is been in, engaged in the Republic of Letters, now in the Republic of Journals. Um, they share information. Um, but mm -hmm. crafts like this don't do that. There's still a, there's still a, a little bit of a guild mentality, just maybe just a, a culture of uh, the culture of apprenticeship does not allow for the diffusion of information. Um, there, no one's reading a whaling journal and say, Hey, look what these guys have done. Um, so that mm -hmm. leads to that insular uh, quality that you're referring to. Definitely. Um, New Bedford is a, so New, Med, New Bedford is a community of experts, a community of expertise. Um, it's also a community of investors. The, could you describe how investment in whaling works and how the sort of whaling wealth diffuses itself through the town? Sure. So um, when you have a, a whale ship go out, um, it's, a, it's a fairly expensive proposition. It's, it, it takes a lot of capital to outfit it, to uh, hire the crew, uh, to do any repairs that need to be done since the last voyage. Uh, to purchase the ship in the first first place, uh, um, and so all of that is sort of coordinated by an agent, a whaling agent. And I, in my book, I liken a whaling agent to a Hollywood producer. It's the, 
the guy that keeps you know a dozen dozen plates spinning up in the air um, to, to pull this fairly complex venture uh, together and and to actually make it all work. So what does, uh, he, have to, what does the, he have to do? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're going to explain that. But what does? Yeah. Is he the owner? Is he the owner of a firm that's running the ship? How does this? How does that work? So uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. So um, the owner of the ship uh, sometimes would be an agent. Um, sometimes would not be an agent. Captain would would typically not be the owner. Captain would would be uh, someone contracted for for the voyage. Um, and um, often uh, the agent uh, would, not often, you know, this was what almost always happened. The agent would then um, figure out how much money he needed to, to pull together and would sell shares of the whaling voyage, essentially divvy it up. And what, what's so interesting about New Bedford is that these shares would be bought by everyday people. Um, now the agent obviously had the biggest share. You know, had was going to make the most money if the the voyage was successful. Was taking the most risk if it wasn't successful. But then filtering down from there, people would buy um, a share or two of of an upcoming whaling voyage, and and those people would be ministers, bakers, um, jewelers. Um, you know, the everyday people of New Bedford that had a little money to invest that had uh, squirreled this away. And the agent is the one that sort of pulls all that together. Um, and then, you know, fast forward three, four, five years when the whaling voyage is over, uh, disseminate the profits. And for agents, you know, that was a very lucrative business. Uh, some of the most powerful men, uh, powerful families in New Bedford uh, made their money through through this process, through this this particular uh, uh way of, of developing uh, the investments. Um, but what that also meant, and this, this goes back to that, that idea of insularity, um, New Bedford wasn't, this whaling industry in New Bedford wasn't looking to a lot of outside influence and a lot of outside money. It was money pooled from the community itself. Um, and so, and that was something that they were not only very conscious of, but would actually tout. So, um, you know, by the 1850s, you have articles talking about how, because of, of the, the lucrative nature of whaling and, the, and how much money could be made in these whaling products, these light producing products, um, that, um, you know, they would also say, these articles would also talk about how that money stayed within New Bedford, um, how it, you know, financed streets and schools and the fire department and a free library um, and how it wasn't outside money. It wasn't foreign money. It wasn't um, money from from other cities or other communities. It was New Bedford money for New Bedfordists. Um, and that was a sense of pride. This is so New Bedford sounds to me um, like almost like a maritime, an Italian maritime republic. It's like Genoa or Venice. Uh, it's uh, the, it's very strange. They see they talk about foreign money in the 1850s. Mm -hmm. uh, they're surrounded by Massachusetts for crying out loud. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they, they, they that is part of this insularity of this community of expertise and the insularity of uh, community of investors. Exactly, um, and that's all well and good until New Bed until whaling starts to slide in terms of its profitability. Well, let, let's get to that in just a second. I wanted to ask, um, do people make multiple, I, I would imagine that to diffuse, uh, to, uh, diffuse risk, people are making investments in multiple um, voyages. Absolutely. So uh, an agent um, would you know, maybe start out uh, with one ship, uh, but would quickly develop a, an inventory of multiple ships uh, coming and going um, you know, as I, as I mentioned, these voyages would last uh, multiple years. And so it, uh, it, it didn't do to, you know, only have one ship out and then just, you know, sort of sit and wait. Um, they really needed a sort of constantly rotating uh, inventory of ships. And of course, the more an agent made, um, the more they invested in, in purchasing additional ships. And what about um, the the baker and the minister who invests? Are they are the, are people investing in something to get a return, like a yearly or uh, 
every two year return or I mean it would be based on when when the the voyage was actually over to to mm -hmm. learn but it was a it was a when it did pay out it was it was a pretty good investment it, it, uh, I think the typical rate was anywhere from uh, eight to sixteen percent mm -hmm. um, which you know was was a good amount of money um, you know compared to say investing in uh, agriculture or yeah. you know railroads up and coming by then so you know it was it was seen as it was seen as safe harbor um, yeah. for your money as well and it, and there are very there are relatively few places to put your money like that in 1850s america absolutely um I, there's i mean there's lots of places to invest but if you want sort of um you know good returns and and, and it was never a sure thing i mean ships ships sunk ship uh thing they were lost in hurricanes um, things went wrong, uh, but uh, you know, sort of comparatively, it was seen as as a, a good investment, and and again, one that not only benefited you as the investor, but and benefited the the larger community you were part of. So, um, can we talk about some inflection points in the um, in the New Bedford um, the, the story of whaling in New Bedford? And one of them is eighteen sixty five. And the Confederate ship, states ship Shenandoah, oddly mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. So the Civil War was was pretty harsh on um, the New Bedford whaling fleet, um, and sort of it it starts at the beginning, um, where the North is looking to uh, barricade uh, and block up uh, Southern ports, and they actually come to New Bedford. And purchase some of the old ships, the the ones that were a little long in the tooth that uh, uh, agents and owners were were happy to to relinquish, and they actually take them to Charleston and Savannah and sink them. They actually called the Stone Fleet. Uh, uh, Melville has a, a famous poem uh, about the Stone Fleet. Uh, but what that does is it takes a, a significant number of ships out of the inventory. Um, granted, sort of older ships. Um, but ones that are likely not to be replaced. So that sort of is the beginning of the Civil War. And then throughout the Civil War, the one, one way that the South quickly realizes they can hurt the North, they can really impact the North, is to go after uh, the merchant trade, the, the maritime trade, and whaling especially. Uh, uh, you know, we've talked about you know, whaling as profitable and as uh, you know, something that, that sort of fuels uh, industry, um, uh, and, and the like. And so, you know, they don't, the South doesn't have a, a traditional Navy, but they do have privateers. And, uh, there's, there's a couple famous privateers, uh, Florida is one, but the Shenandoah is sort of the, the one that, that really, uh, gets, gets a lot of attention rightfully, uh, because the Shenandoah is extremely adept at going after whale ships and goes on a, a run that that ends up destroying uh, about two dozen uh, dozen whale ships. Uh, manages to to find whale ships up in the uh, up north and and takes them out uh, all at the same time. The problem with all of this is that particular rampage, that particular run of the Shenandoah uh, all happened after the civil war was over. Uh, and, you know, not, people back home had, had sort of, you know, rung the bells and, and huzzahed and uh, declared the end of the war. Uh, whether that information had made it uh, up to um the Shenandoah is a matter of debate whether he ignored uh, uh, this information, thought it was false, thought it was a, uh, a lie, um, or or not. Um, the the end result is still the same: that a, a large number of of good whale ships, whale ships that that weren't looking to be um, sort of tossed tossed to the side, are now also destroyed, also burned. Um, and and not likely to come back, and all of those losses, of course, then uh, come back onto um, the community of New Bedford. Um, that's all uh, oil that's been lost, ships that have been lost, um, 
not a ton of deaths. Um, you know, this was all done in the sort of gentlemanly uh, way, uh, if you can call it that, uh, where everyone was removed from the ship before it was then torched. Um, but um, very significant losses uh, to to the community of New Bedford, both in terms of uh, financial, but also the sort of psychological loss of these these ships, these these things that you know. Yes, they're floating factories. Yes, they're any and and means to an end, but they're also very psychological. They're they're homes for for groups of men for years at a time. They're um, you know these big you know hulking beautiful things um, that that the community prides and community has a sense of pride around. And to see all those wiped out, um, you know, literally. Uh, you know, kind of one fell swoop is is a psychological uh, blow um, as well as a financial one. Now, let me ask you about the, uh, you, you've said a couple of times they're not likely to be replaced, but the Stone Fleet, I mean, they were handsomely compensated for the Stone Fleet. I mean, that was like a, like a windfall, wasn't it? To be paid yes, for these yeah. old ships. Yeah. And likewise, um, I know that the first type of insurance in the United States was maritime insurance. Um, those were, I think, the Philadelphia firms were the first into that in the 1780s or 1790s. Um, so uh, surely these also got these guys uh, were insured against some sort of loss or accident. They were so they so the there is the money from from either the compensation for the Stone Fleet or uh, insurance. Although the insurance rates had gone up so so much because of the war. Um, that didn't didn't always work out uh, for for the owners, but by even by the Civil War, um, the the writing was on the wall that uh, other types of illuminants, other types of lubricants, were starting to come on the market, and this was driven by petroleum products um, okay. and the discovery of, of petroleum and kerosene, especially. Yeah, um, and eighteen what's that? Eighteen fifty eight, Drake in uh, Oil City, Pennsylvania. Yes, and, and 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 add to that also uh, natural gas, uh, yeah. um, which even New Bedford itself uh, starts to lay gas lines, uh, much to the consternation of uh, some of the local folks. Sorry, sorry, I, but it's the um, there's the it, you did say it was also being used for lubrication. Um, uh, which I hadn't realized, not just illumination, but also lubrication. Yeah, I, I didn't make a, a big deal of that uh, uh, before, but it, it is also used, um, whale oil was also used as an industrial lubricant. Um, it was used uh, especially for chronometers and, and watches. Hmm. Uh, whale oil was used as a, as a lubricant and certain, certain types of industrial machinery um, could, could use it as a lubricant. And as the United States is becoming ever more devoted to machinery, uh, partly because of the Civil War, um, there's there, it strikes me that also also the fact that um, the Shenandoah was looking for whalers in the Arctic, um, they're using up their supply. They're overhunting whales, aren't they, in, by the 1860s? Yeah, so um, there's a couple things going on. The, um, the, the demand for, for the products is, is diminishing, but as you say, it's also getting harder to, to find whales, um, uh, you know, the sort of class, we would call it overfishing today. Um, they didn't use that term then, but, um, you know, the classic, uh, you know, Tragic, sort of balance. Commons. Yeah, it, the sort of balancing uh, the, uh, you know, what's ultimately a, a harvest, a, a harvest industry um, and and avoiding the, the conundrum of overharvesting. Um the reason the Arctic is interesting, you mentioned the Arctic, and, and yes, that's where the Shenandoah found a lot of these whale ships, is there's also a shift in what whaling could produce or did produce um, for, for profit. Um, you know, we talked a lot about the, the oils um, and, and those products. There's another thing that whales have, a specific kind of whale, the, the non-toothed whale or baleen whale, um, has these these plates of baleen. It's basically the same uh, material that our finger fingernails are are from, hooves are from. And what baleen whales do is this is how they eat. They use these these long uh, baleen plates. You know, often you know up to twenty or so um, in a mouth of a full grown whale. 
Um, and they act as sieves. They act as sieves where water comes in, and then anything um, animal uh, like krill and plankton uh, gets caught up in, in the sieve, and that becomes uh, whale food uh, for non-toothed whales. The reason man became interested in that is baleen was also extremely flexible um, and could be once, you know, dried and cured, could be sort of molded into all kinds of, of shapes. And so eyeglasses were made from baleen. They would call it whale bone. That was a misnomer. It wasn't bone at all, but they would call it whale bone. Um, shoehorns were whale bone. But the biggest market for whalebone was uh, originally uh, the the apparatus for hoop skirts, women's uh, you know those classic Scarlett O'Hara hoops uh, were often held up by baleen, this sort of flexible material. And then when that went out of fashion, and corsets became the fashion, corsets were often whalebone. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand. You already see the signs that whaling is starting to diminish in importance. The products, the traditional products um, are, are disappearing. But you have a sort of second life, a second birth by chasing baleen whales. But the problem with that is baleen whales tend to go where their food is, and that's the Arctic uh, in the summer. And so that's why you you start to see whale ships appearing, you know, taking these long voyages to the Arctic, to the northern reaches um, with greater and greater regularity. And that's why the Shenandoah is able to, to cause such havoc um, in the Arctic is because there was such a concentration of whale ships facing a new, a different type of whale and a different type of whale product than they would have even a generation before. Um, can we talk about your great great grandfather? Um, he's active starting around this period in the 1870s. Is that be right? Um, yeah. So he's he, and one reason I, I focused on him even back when I discovered that obituary is I, his life really struck me as a metaphor for this industry. He was born in 1839. Um, he takes his first voyage at 16 years old, um, which would have put him. Uh, during the 1855, so kind of the the height, the golden age of of whaling is when he goes into it, um, and and then but then he's there, um, you know, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere out on out, out at sea, um, for this this sort of slow, steady decline that we're we're sort of uh, already starting to see, um, and these losses, uh, you know, the, the shrinking of the of the fleet. Um, even starting, you know, with the Civil War um, and continuing afterwards, and so his his life sort of is this, you know, it's, it's he's in, in his youth, he's in the golden age, and by his death, you know, uh, the industry is it's itself uh, largely, you know, withered and and, and gone. Um, and so that was something that struck me about him um, was he he sort of lived this this arc, lived this this moment of, of transformation and transition. Mm -hmm. um, we discussed the disaster of 1865. There's also a disaster which further hurts New Bedford um, by hurting the whaling industry in 1871. There was. So again, this, and this also happens in the Arctic. Um, and by then, the, by the 1870s, New Bedford is, you know, very whaling itself, but New Bedford leading, leading that industry is very much um, pursuing Arctic whaling, pursuing the baling uh, and whalebone uh, of those particular whales. Arctic whaling is hugely dangerous. I mean, if you thought if you thought whaling was dangerous before going after, you know, as you say, some of the most you know, largest and most dangerous animals, you know, ever on earth, um, now do that same thing, but in the Arctic with dangerous weather, ice, uh, you know, free, frigid temperatures, even in the summer, um, and just add that layer of complexity and danger to it. And, and so I, New Bedford always knew that it was flirting with that danger. You know, every year there are some ships that one or two were lost to Arctic ice. You know, the ice would come in. Um, and this wasn't like, you know, the Titanic hitting an iceberg. It wasn't that kind of ice. It was ice pack that would just 
uh, collect and and just basically work as a battering ram, um, lock a ship in place so it couldn't move until it eventually broke through the hull and and, and sank. Um, and this would happen to to you know, like I said, one or two ships each year um, in the Arctic. But in 1871, it happened to the entire New Bedford fleet, um, uh, over 20 ships, uh, with the exception of six ships, six New Bedford ships that had managed to stay a little bit further south, uh, that were, were working a little bit further south and became rescue ships, became um, the ships that over a thousand uh, whalemen, but also some women and children, um, which may surprise listeners that women and children would accompany captains um, on on some voyages. So not only did you know all these crews have to be rescued, but but a handful of women and children had to be rescued as well. Um, and they were. That's the amazing thing. They 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 managed to get everyone um, to these six, six remaining whale ships. Uh, without losing a single life, um, over a thousand men, women, and children um, got to these these uh, sort of you know impromptu rescue ships. Um, and the reason that that this is part of the book and it's it's part of the story is not only does this have you know yet another impact on on New Bedford and, and whaling and sort of you know is yet another literal and psychological blow to the whaling fleet, but one of those rescue ships was the progress uh, the title uh whale ship whaling bark uh of the book um and so this is really the kind of the first time that that readers are introduced to uh the the bark progress um and that that moment of the arctic whaling disaster will then come up again as part of its its story and its life so when those um six rescue ships returned with their cargo uh, human cargo to new bedford it's New Bedford that's changed drastically from 1853. I think it's safe to say that. Um, and it's becoming like other Massachusetts uh, industrial towns, which is not what we talked about being a maritime city republic, which I think is a nice metaphor for what it was. It's becoming uh, like Lowell. It's becoming like um, all the other, like Springfield. It's becoming like all the other places with mills and workers and so on. Is that fair? That's a fair summary. It is. So uh, it it be, it becomes a cotton town. It becomes a cotton manufacturing town. Um, and as as whaling sort of diminishes, you can almost see, you know, these these two sides of a, an old fashioned scale. As as whaling is going down, you know, cotton manufacturing is going up. Um, and what's interesting about that is, yet again, it was. Uh, it's New Bedford money that was going into these new mills. It was New Bedford investors, um, often the same families that had made their fortune on whaling. Um, now we're taking those that those fortunes, those profits, uh, that investable money, and instead of investing in whaling voyages, we're now putting the money into new mills. And new new mills meant new workers. New mills meant a workforce that often came from immigrant labor, often came from female uh, workers. Some of the early ones, uh, not so much, but later mills um, were that classic, um, you know, image we have of a cotton mill or a fabric mill uh, staffed by by armies of of young women um, and children. Um, that's a huge shift for New Bedford, um, uh, where you know before it had been. You know, whaling and, and very much, um, you know, New Bedford sons and 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 the emphasis on sons. You know, this being a very manly industry, do something that that was very different. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it, there's, and it, there's an irony and a paradox there too that the uh, the city, which is probably the most abolitionist city in America. Uh, in the antebellum United States has now become a center for cotton manufacture. Well, just that's, that's, that be, can be considered by someone else at some other time. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's funny, you know, when I, when I first started looking at this, this story as a historian, um, and I would read about this, this part of the story, this, this part of the narrative where, where New Bedford shifted from a, a whaling town to a New Bedford town. 
a lot of what I read was very sort of neutral. Um, it was almost uh, without a lot of emotion and uh, just sort of the, the dollars and cents of it. Oh, well, you know, whaling you know, wasn't making money. There was money to be made in cotton. Of course, people you know, shifted their investments thusly. Um, and I was more skeptical of that. I, I felt like, you know, if you have this, this industry um, that's been so much part of, of New Bedford for so many generations, and really within the course of very few years, really within the course of, of a generation, that whole identity becomes something else, becomes a whole different industry, becomes cotton instead of whaling. There has to be some sort of psychological impact to that. There has to be some emotion to it. It can't just be this sort of cold calculation of, of numbers. And so that was something I, I, I looked for and, and, and was able to find pretty readily that, that the whaling community, even as it was getting smaller and smaller and smaller, you know, and, and there were, were very logical, reasonable reasons that was happening, there was resentment. There was resentment that people were bailing on on um, whaling and moving the money to cotton. There was resentment that New Bedford was becoming a cotton town and seemed to, you know, have this new infatuation and this new love um, that miss. I won't say many, but some thought was at the expense of whaling. Some mm-hmm. thought was a betrayal of whaling. That people were accelerating. Um, something that maybe didn't have to happen or didn't have to happen as quickly uh, by by moving this money, by making this shift. And so uh, what I had traditionally seen as, as sort of a uh, you know, cold economic argument um, to me took on a lot of uh, emotion um, and, and some layers of um, maybe even a sense of betrayal. Uh, for for some people, the the people that were still involved in in whaling and the the whaling industry. So I, it's the sense of betrayal then, as I read you, which leads to a sort of preoccupation behind the book, um, how how memorialization happens. Um, am I right in thinking that it's the sense of betrayal that begins to push people with a whaling industry no longer viable? What they then wish to do is memorialize it in some way. Um, I do. To, I, to remember I, it, to, to hold yeah. on to it in some way, not to let it slip from their fingers, not to forget who they once were. Exactly. And, and add to that, um, it isn't entirely a product of the past. There is still whaling happening by you know the 1880s and the 1890s. Um, again, to point to my own ancestor, you know, he he was not alone in continuing to pursue this this way of life, this tradition. Um, he was certainly in a much smaller group. Uh, he was certainly a minority. Um, but, you know, I think that adds a layer to this as well, is it's, it's not entirely in the past. Um, and I think there's really good parallels to today. You know, when you look at the coal industry, or the steel industry, yeah, or manufacturing, yeah, um, you know, you have museums that are, are, on the one hand, trying to commemorate these industries, memorialize these industries, capture these industries as a piece of history, but have to be very conscious that there are still people in those lines of work, doing these these forms of labor, um, having these sort of traditional uh, life ways that get passed down, you know, from father to son or mother to daughter or whatever. Um, that all has to be balanced and that all has to be taken into account. And I think it's what's so interesting about this story is you see that happening, um, even though this is a very contemporary story for us with the things like the Rust Belt, um, you see it over a hundred years ago with New Bedford. Yeah. So it's like, um, I thought of that. It's like the stories of Joe, uh, Joe Magarak, the steel, the legendary steel worker who's probably invented for a newspaper or something like that. <laughs> but I mean, this was in like the 1930s. Uh, steel is very much a thing. But mm-hmm. there's already a folklore about even the way it was about a man who can dip his hand into a vat of molten steel and stir it. Um, yes. you know who can take t- uh, take an I beam and bend it. You know while it's still sizzling hot. Um, things like that. I mean, there's there's a memorialization and and folklore begin sometimes while the thing is is still going strong. Exactly, and that's very much what's what's sort of happening in New Bedford by 
you know, the 1890s um, is this sense of, you know, this shrinking community um, wanting to, to be taken seriously, wanting to be you know, recognized for what they're still doing. And then the, the larger New Bedford community sort of struggling with, you know, what is what is the place of whaling in this this new modern city uh, of New Bedford by the 1890s, you know, and and do we turn our back on it? Do we embrace it? You know, what what's what's the right balance? What's the right way to do this? So um, the progress eventually makes it to the Columbian Exposition. Uh, before we talk about how that happened, let's uh, briskly talk about the Columbian Exposition of 1883, uh, why it's not in 1892, um, and, uh, and the importance of this event. Um, we touched on this a little bit way back in episode 91. We talked about John Wanamaker and his, uh, his lust almost for going to these world's fairs and, um, what were, how world's fairs were connected to both, you know, amusement parks and museums and department stores and how mm-hmm. in many ways, all those things come out of world's fairs. Could you talk about the importance of the Columbian exposition? Sure. So, um, America had, had hosted a world's fair before we had hosted one in Philadelphia, uh, for the centennial, uh, and 1876, you know, it, it, it was nice. <laughs> people, people liked it. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't something on a grand scale. And so by the time we hit 1893, um, you know, America has become, you know, not only the industrial powerhouse, but we're starting to uh, really take on imperial pursuits. We're really starting, of course, we always had on our on our own continent, uh, but starting to look overseas. And, and really, it's this moment where America wants to stand shoulder to shoulder with European superpowers and say, "We're your equal." And so Chicago, 1893, the Columbian Exposition, uh, which is, you know, supposedly to commemorate, you know, Columbus's, quote, discovery of America, um, you know, becomes this this stage upon which we have our sort of coming out party to the international community, where we say we are a superpower, too. We have culture. We have military power. We have whiteness. Um, you know, it's very much making this a, a sort of hierarchy of races and hierarchy of nations argument and and pushes this this narrative of, of the world coming to America and America being able to not only host it, but to uh, really, you know, elevate it that it takes the Chicago World's Fair to bring the entirety of the world into a sort of encyclopedic, uh, you know, minutely categorized uh, uh, schema of, of the universe uh, with America sort of at the top of that pyramid. Um, and there are lots of other things associated with this. Um, there's the Midway, which is, you know, mm-hmm. kind of carnies and it's amusement park and it's risque. But then there's also like a Congress of World Religions. There are learned papers. Frederick Jackson Turner gives his famous paper on the closing of the American frontier during the Columbian Exposition. We, it's a very strange juxtaposition of many, many things. It is. And, it's, and you, we've been talking a lot about paradoxes and, and the, the World's Fair is itself a, a paradox because it's, you know, the, on the one hand, the, the quote, white city, this sort of gleaming, um, of course, all temporary. It was all, all meant to uh, only last a few months. With the exception um, of the Museum of Science and Industry. I'll just yes. point that out. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, the, the one building that required uh, insurance uh, <laughs> to be permanent because uh, it had all the, the works of art in it. Um, so yeah, the, there's this sort of, you know, almost temple on the hill mentality of, of the white city paired with a sort of free form, rowdy, loud, you know, uh, risque, as you point out midway, um, and, and both of those somehow coexisting. Um, you have people that, you know, want to visit the fair, ride the Ferris wheel, um, you know, very much make it a, a sort of Disney, we call it a Disney experience, uh, juxtaposed with these these conferences and these congresses that that are putting forth, you know, some of the most erudite arguments of the day. Um, so, you know, there's it, a little bit of everything. 
Yeah, I, I don't. Someone's probably written. Probably there's multiple monographs in this, but I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'll bet you, you know, a lot of money that Walt Disney, when he was thinking of the Disney World in Florida, was thinking of something like this, um, since he meant to have the serious. You know, Epcot was supposed to be the experimental city of tomorrow, but very sober, very serious. At the same time, with amusement park rides and all the fun and all that stuff, I, he has to be harking back to that the very juxt the strange juxtapositions of the the world's fairs of his of his youth. Definitely. And, he, you know, he in his uh, biographies, he makes it very clear that he was inspired by sort of later World's Fairs. Uh, mm -hmm. that he went to. Well, he would have been thinking of the St. Louis World's Fair, um, mm -hmm. being from Missouri. And um, and really, it's hard to overstate the importance of these World's Fairs. I mean, President McKinley gets assassinated at one. Um, they're, they're, and they, they happen a lot and they're, they're more important than people might think. Um, so how does the progress end up making its way into the Great Lakes? So, so in the middle of all of this, you know, this, you know, world's fair, you know, world stage, um, New Bedford comes up with the idea, you know, this is sort of what we've been building to, of sending a whale ship, a, a whaling bark to the world's fair, to the Columbian Exposition. And it's meant to be a whaling museum, which is another thing that really interested me. In the story, because it wasn't just an attraction, it wasn't just you know a floating model um, on on one of the ponds. It was actually meant to to go aboard and to experience as a museum. They always talked about it as as a museum, and so this concept of museum craft was very very interesting to me. Um, it managed to get to Chicago through a series of canals um, and and waterways. I mean, it was not the only ship that, that came to Chicago uh, from the East Coast, um, but it was certainly one of the largest and and suffered uh, some pretty pretty big bonks along the way. <laughs> getting it. Read, read the book for the story because it's yeah, quite amazing that, what they had to do. Yeah, quite quite a bit, but it manages to finally get to Chicago um, again. You know, many trials and travails uh, before it gets to the, the World's Fair. And when it finally lands at the World's Fair, it's like uh, you almost want to breathe a sigh of relief. You know, it's like, oh, okay, finally, um, it's there. But it's this—we've talked about the paradoxes and the ironies, and and I think the progress sort of encapsulates so many of them. Um, on the one hand, it's it's meant to be this this sort of informative museum about whaling. Um, but it's sitting there in the middle of a fair dedicated to the future, you know, America looking towards the future and, and declaring itself um, as, as, you know, the nation that will lead uh, the world in the next century. Um, and so, you know, right from the beginning, and it, it, you know, we talked about how there's the white city and there's the midway. You might think that a whaling ship um, you know, that you could go on board, whether it's a museum or not, you know, would sort of fit with the midway. It's sort of, a, you know, a cool attraction. You pay your, pay your quarter and you get on, on board. But it wasn't. It was actually in this sort of erudite, elevated uh, white city that was predicated on, you know, the ideas of, of um, you know, the future and progress. And, you know, and as, the greatest irony of all is you have a whaling ship called Progress representing an industry that's, you know, decay that's yeah. gone. Um, so yeah, so there's all of these ironies um, as it as it makes its its way um, that start to bubble up on as it, as it goes through that route through the Great Lakes through the now it makes stops in Montreal and Buffalo um, it makes a stop in Detroit uh, and by that point Captain Gifford um, is is so sick of of the crowds he won't let anyone on. <laughs> so uh, that was a revenue lost in Detroit, and then you know continues on to Chicago, and then finally um, by by the opening of the fair in 1893, it's sort of been uh, landlocked into this this what they called the Frog Pond, the South Pond, uh, where the whole fair has been built around it, um, and it's sort of you know floating um, in in the White City for for people to to view or not view as the case may be. 
So what stories uh, does the progress tell about the past? I mean, that's what history is and, and often is. There's one definition is the stories that we tell about the past, um, that we're constructing about the past. Um, what what uh, choices do the, do the people that create the progress and create that museum, what, what stories are they telling? Well, and that's where things get really interesting is uh, the original idea, um, as it was conceived back in New Bedford, um, as early as 1891, um, some of the, the first ideas were floated for, for this museum. It was meant to be very educational. It was meant to be a, a very didactic, faithful representation of the whaling industry. They wanted people to come on board and to uh, see all the instruments, to learn this complicated jargon, to learn this complicated process that we talked about. Uh, they wanted people to understand, you know, after after decades of not understanding where whale oil came from and where their spermacetic candles came from, that they really wanted um, this museum to to show whaling and to show how whaling was done and for people to um, appreciate that. And I think, you know, going back to that, that early in our conversation, that idea of an almost religious sheen to, to whaling. Uh, New Bedford's kind of assumed that if you could just get this whaling ship and all these whaling implements and some, some, a whaling crew in front of people that they would just get it that, and they would appreciate it and they would love it. And, and the whaling industry would be, you know, so honored and it would be, you know, worthy of, of New Bedford's history. That isn't what happened. Um, and what happened was a far cry from that. The, the progress ended up being was very much um, a sort of hodgepodge of, of things collected from around the world um, by uh, the people of New Bedford, everything from seashells to narwhal horns to um, grass skirts from the South Seas to uh, a giant sea turtle to a, mama, a mummy from Australia. Hmm. Um, and, and to me, this is where the, the heart of the story really lies. Is, uh, and in fact, I start my book with these, these two visions of the day it left New Bedford with such high hopes, uh, you know, thousands came out to cheer it, uh, and brass bands were playing and horns were blaring. Um, and, and really the sense of communal excitement, communal pride. And then 10 years later, um, it's, it, the, the, the progress has actually been abandoned, um, and is, is sort of listing on its side and in, in the waters of Lake Michigan. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's ultimately a sad story, which you know I I know when I, I circulated early drafts of the book, people would say, well, it's, it's so sad, you know, yeah. why, why are you telling this story? You know, it's such a sad story. But I think there's importance in that. There's, um, there's importance in sort of seeing how history can go awry, um, and how you know, as especially if you're a public historian, if you work with museum craft and exhibitry, um, you know, I think the people of New Bedford really thought that if they just put, you know, a whale ship and whaling instruments, that, that that's all it would take. Um, and I think today uh, we're, we're more sophisticated about uh, public history, but I think we still uh, sometimes think that if we just have the good stuff, you know, just have good objects, you know, good, good stuff in cases, that that's, that's all it takes. Um, and, and here's a case where, where that didn't work. Um, and I think it's a, it's an important story. Uh, it's an important reminder. So you, you conclude that preface by, I mean, read yourself to yourself. Uh, you said that the progress revealed stories of light and dark pride and despair in combinations few could have foretold. There are lessons contained within that can guide our very contemporary debates and discourses about the place of work and the expendability of labor in modern America. The process, the progress is speaking to us over a hundred years later about how to value a community and their livelihood. All we need to do is listen. In a way, you've just given a little bit of a response, but when you listen, what do you hear? To me, the, the big takeaway when I was done sort of 
compiling everything and sort of sat down and thought about what I was looking at, it all comes back to that, that idea of community. Um, and I think the reason the, the progress failed um, was it was ultimately severed from its community. This community of, of New Bedford uh, and New Bedford whalers and whaling agents and, and merchants especially, um, you know, had this sense of pride, had this sense of ownership, but then they sent it off. They sent it, you know, hundreds of miles away to Chicago. Um, and, and it was in the hands of, of men from Chicago. It wasn't, it wasn't a New Bedford enterprise anymore. And that sort of severing of, of the link between a museum, its objects, its narratives, its purpose, its goals, and the community um, that, that creates all those things, um, I think that's ultimately the villain here. That's ultimately the, the thing that went wrong. Um, it wasn't any one person. It wasn't any one single individual's fault. It was the idea that you could somehow divorce, you could somehow separate uh, this goal from, from the people, uh, from the people of New Bedford, the people of this, this community. Um, and I think, I think it didn't take long for New Bedford to realize that, sort of follow the story of the progress. They sort of realize what, you know, what a, a disaster, what a fiasco it, it was. And within a few short months of, of the, the true end of the progress, they come together in their own community, in their own, uh, you know, civic hall at a civic meeting, and they begin to plan a whaling museum there in New Bedford, there, a whaling museum of their own community. And, um, and I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that, you know, that's just coincidence that those two things happen within a few months of each other. Um, and of course, you know, the New Bedford Whaling Museum is still around today and is, you know, a top-notch institution. Um, so I think that to me, that's one of the big lessons here is, um, you know, as much as, as museum professionals and public historians, you know, work with objects and think about objects, um, that it's ultimately the community that makes a museum or makes history work. Um, and without, without once, if that's ever severed, um, it can lead to, you know, some real problems. My guest today has been Daniel Gifford. He's the author of The Last Voyage of the Whaling Ship Progress, New Bedford, Chicago, and the Twilight of an Industry. Dan, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.